You don't know these guys, but I do. I know them well, too well. So well, in fact, that I must advise you. Do not take any advice from either of them. Seriously. Their comments that follow are just their own opinions and should not be relied on for anything. Not only should you not consider anything they say to constitute legal advice, I wouldn't believe much at all that they tell you. It's genetic and it goes back for generations. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Motion Sickness, the show, making sense out of the nonsense in law. My name's Brian Morris. My name's Jeff Morris. And today, we're going to talk about what exactly? We're going to talk about what it's like to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. Oh, yeah. Uh, You were in the Supreme Court. Well, not a member of the Supreme Court, but you were in the building. I've been in the building, absolutely. Right, okay. On more than one occasion. More than once. Yeah. You were in trouble, were you? No, no. Okay. A couple of cases, a couple of times I was there on um, very social kinds of events uh, where they happened to be held at the Supreme Court building. Uh, like parties and stuff? Uh, induction ceremonies oh, for okay. members of the American College of Bankruptcy. Hmm. But not on this occasion we're going to talk about today. Okay. We're going to talk about my experiences, limited though they are, with the U.S. Supreme Court. I had two separate cases I was involved in that uh, at least had filings in the Supreme Court. The first one was a, uh, a case um, in which a person in Dayton, Ohio, was without a lawyer and needed some legal assistance, and I uh, prepared what is called a writ for petition for certiorari, uh, excuse me, a petition for writ of certiorari, and that's one of the ways in which the Supreme Court gets jurisdiction over matters. It could issue a writ of certiorari saying, we'll take that case. All right, so my French isn't very good, so <laughs> certiorari is what now? Sounds like a shish kebab. Essentially certifying a case to the Supreme Court. They're going to hear the, the appeal. Appeals come to the Supreme Court in several ways. The two most common are, one, uh, appeals or matters that are uh, actions between two states. So, for example, North and South Carolina recently finished some litigation over where the uh, oh the border the right? border line should be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it, it changed a little bit. So those cases go to the Supreme Court. Most cases go there on a writ of certiorari, where you petition the court and say, "Please hear this case," and they decide whether they'll take it or not. And they take a very small percentage of these, uh, probably oh less than a percent or two a year of all the petitions filed. And one of the primary bases for issuing a writ of certiorari is that there is a uh, conflict in the decisions in the circuit courts of appeals right below the Supreme Court. So they say, oh my God, the Third Circuit says this and the Seventh Circuit says that. Uh, We've got things going both ways. We need to be the ultimate arbiter of that and come up with the solution. Not every conflict between the circuits gets heard by the Supreme Court. But that's a primary way in which the Supreme Court decides we'll hear that particular case. Do, do you know, on average, about how many cases they hear a year? Or? It's less than 100 a year now. I oh, think. okay. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a small number. Uh, the term goes from the first Monday in October until the end of June. 
and they obviously have holiday periods in between there. And on a typical day, they might have, and they won't have arguments five days a week. They might have arguments three days a week. Mm -hmm. uh, depends on how many cases there are. And they'll have uh, as few as occasionally one, one of these big, huge kinds of, you know, Bush versus Gore kinds of issues and those sorts of things. But typically, probably three cases a day would be argued. Okay. Now, the, the, the first, this, this case from... Uh, Ohio that I worked on involved a, a lady in Dayton who was trying to uh, get rid of judicial liens that were on her house so that she could stay in the house and live there. And uh, uh, a local lawyer there came to me and asked if I would prepare the petition uh, for writ of certiorari, and I, I did that. And uh, we almost got it heard, I think, because the court took a long time to deny the writ mm -hmm. and it in the in the meantime after i had filed a petition for writ of certiorari a case from another circuit had come down that was also slightly different so we thought it might increase the chances that our case would be taken and it did go on a few more weeks before the court actually decided no we're not going to give you that so at that at that point i had to become a member of the bar of the supreme court of the united states and i submitted a, a petition to them on that particular case. And it's different because, in, and that was before highly electronic days, that was in, in 1994 uh, and, and actually early 95. And it was a time when electronic filing wasn't the, the way you did it, it was all paper filings. And you have to get special covers printed and everything else. So it's a pretty elaborate process. But it was the first time that I had ever filed any documents in the US Supreme Court and didn't win, mm. didn't win. Um, well, you can't win them all. No. So It'd be nice to win so, some. So just just to get it straight then, in order to uh, be a lawyer at the Supreme Court, there's a special bar association you have to be a member of? Yes, you have to be a member of the bar of the Supreme Court of the United States. Now, I'm going to say it's not terribly difficult to get that. Right, I was say, is it just a paperwork drill, basically? Essentially, yes. Okay. You have to be a member in good standing of the bar of the state you're coming from, sure. that sort of thing. Okay. But that's really about it. They don't have any kind of a, a panel of people that reviews these things and so forth. And many lawyers actually uh, become members of the Supreme Court bar just because it's kind of a cool thing to do. And, okay. Uh, law schools often will have days where their alumni will meet and maybe... 20 of them will be sworn in together and they'll have a little, maybe a little lunch meeting or something with a justice, that sort of thing. Well, pat yourself on the back. Sort of, yeah, and it's good uh, the law schools then try to hit those lawyers up, I'm sure. The yeah. Moms some <laughs> exactly. So, so that's, uh, that was my first uh, opportunity to have anything directly connected with the Supreme Court. And is that good for life? Uh, or do you have to you like know, keep renewing it? That's a good question. It? I don't, uh, you know, I don't, recall that it was a time limit so i think it probably is although uh i'm no longer a member of any state bar as i have retired so right. i may not any longer be a member of that bar either but it's pretty cool and it's a it's an amazing building but i i was a member of the bar of the supreme court but i'd never seen the inside of the building at that point right now they don't i don't even know if i've ever seen what the inside of the Supreme Court looks like. I mean, they don't really like pictures in there, no, do they? No, no, uh, they don't have uh, cameras in that courtroom. Uh, they may have a, a very, on very rare occasions, but uh, uh, it's there's audio tape, and you usually see the outside, but that's uh, the pictures you're looking at online are exactly what it looks like. Hmm. 
Uh, it is much smaller in real life than you would expect it to be. It, I mean, even in the pictures I'm looking at, it looks really small. It looks like you've got sort of a, a, a listener's gallery that has three rows of benches that only have five benches each. There's yeah. 15 benches. Then, then you've the, got then there a is row what, of chairs. It's called the bar, and in, in the front of that are where counsel in the upcoming cases can sit. Yeah. And then you've got the actual uh, tables where the lawyers are arguing the and those tables are like right up front of the... They they are really much closer to the Supreme Court uh, bench than I expected without yeah. having seen it beforehand. I mean, it looks like at the farthest point, because the Supreme Court bench, if you, if you want to imagine in your head, it's it's kind of like a, like a curved, really long curved desk, concave, as you're looking at it. And there are... Well, nine. this picture shows nine. That's nine. Nine justices, nine, nine, nine seats. chairs. Uh, but the, uh, at the farthest point, sort of at the apex of the curve, looks like it can't be more than six feet. No, it's it's more than that. Is it's it? probably... Maybe ten? Uh, from end to end, they probably have 30 feet total. No, 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 I'm saying from where the lawyers sit. Oh, from from there to oh yeah yeah from where the lawyers six feet sit tops. yeah yes it six looks like it's tops. about six feet lawyer bench to the to the actual uh, table to the actual Supreme Court bench half a dozen feet you're much closer than I ever expected yeah that's that's really crazy hmm. so let's talk about this second case that I became involved in which was a case before the court the very next year 1995 um, we had a group in Dayton that met monthly throughout the academic year and it was local lawyers interested in bankruptcy matters and at the end of the year there was oftentimes a sort of a year-end banquet and we would have a uh, guest speaker and this one year we had a guest speaker who was a, a very well-known bankruptcy judge from uh, Nashville Tennessee very highly regarded guy and really interesting speaker and uh, he gave a talk and during his talk, he said, and don't forget to keep your eye on this new case, the Supreme Court just granted cert, issued a writ of certiorari in this case, Field versus Mans is the name of the case. He said, it's a stealth case in this way. The lower court decisions, now keep in mind a bankruptcy case starts in a bankruptcy court. Appeals from the bankruptcy court go to the U.S. District Court. Mm -hmm. Then they go from there to the Court of Appeals. Right. Then they would go from there to the Supreme Court. So there's a number of levels. And and usually, if you have a case that makes it to the U.S. Supreme Court, it's been generating some interest along the way. Sure. This one, not so. The lower court decisions were not published in the sense of published uh, in the normal uh, law books. There is a thing called the Bankruptcy Reporter, which publishes... Uh, official decisions and so forth but not every decision a judge writes will make its way in there and these were unpublished decisions all the way through the court of appeals which is really unusual yeah and is it, uh, was there a particular reason for that or you know typically it just courts wasn't an say, exciting case courts say if the, it's not a significant enough issue that it needs to be published in such a way that people become very well informed of it so it guides these other decisions in the future. It's not different enough. We're, we're not, you know, uncovering new ground sort of thing. Uh, and that's what was going on in this case. The other thing that was really fascinating in the case was that um, the creditor was successful, excuse me, was not successful in the, all the way through this case. They, they kept losing. 
they were alleging that this guy had engaged in fraud in such a manner that they were injured and their debt should survive his discharge, shouldn't be able to discharge that obligation. And the courts kept saying, nope, sorry, you lose, you lose, you lose. This creditor then filed a petition for writ of certiorari to the Supreme Court. The, the debtor in the case was represented by a lawyer in the bankruptcy court, but after that, he had no money. He wasn't paying a lawyer. He had no lawyer. He just kept winning without having a lawyer. <laughs> uh, ultimately, he lost once he had a lawyer, but that's a we'll get to that well, issue in a bit. It wasn't you, was it? <laughs> it, it was sort of me. Oh, God. Uh, it wasn't only me. Okay. Nevertheless, uh, the creditor petitioned for writ of certiorari, and this guy, the debtor, said, well, I don't, you know, they're not going to take this. This is a non-lawyer. He's a... He had a little car dealership and some small businesses in New Hampshire, and he just didn't pay much attention to it. And he got to, he said he got a call from the clerk's office of the U.S. Supreme Court saying they filed this petition. The court would like to know if you're going to file a response. You haven't filed anything in a timely manner. Are you filing anything? And he said, I'm not paying money for anything. I don't have any money, and I can't imagine paying somebody to keep litigating with these people. I just wish they'd stop. Yeah. Well, well he'd, he'd won, what, four cases up to that he, point He'd or won something? three times three at times. that point. He was batting 1,000, and, uh, and no one really expected the Supreme Court to grant cert. Again, they grant cert in very few cases. This was not a really exciting, big-time issue, uh, and yet they did. They granted cert. And um, before they had, or I guess right when they had was when this guy had come to speak to our group, and he said, you know, this case is out of nowhere. The guy doesn't even have a lawyer. He says, maybe somebody out here ought to go call the guy up and try to be his lawyer. And I got to thinking about it, and I had just become a member of the Supreme Court Bar from the prior case that I had worked on. And I said, you know, it's, it's probably not right to have this guy up there unrepresented in the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm going to call the guy up and see if he wants a lawyer. Hmm. And so I did. I called the clerk's office in New Hampshire, and I said, I'm trying to get this guy's phone number so I can see if he needs a lawyer, and, you know, kind of hemmed and hawed with me about giving the information, but I, I finally got it, and I called him up, and uh, he seemed like a nice enough fellow, and I, I told him, you know, I'm a member of the Supreme Court Bar, and I'd be happy to represent you on a pro bono basis. I can't, you know, I can't fund expenses and so forth, but, you know, I'd be happy to do all the legal work for you, and, uh, and I think I can even get a little funds donated from a group I'm familiar with to pay some of these printing costs, that sort of thing. Sure. So I said, you know, if you're interested, my understanding is you're not represented. And his response was, what is it with you lawyers? He said, nobody wanted, none of the lawyers wanted to talk to me. I had no money. Now I'm getting all these lawyers calling me from all over the place wanting to be my lawyer. Well, because you're about to go to the Supreme Court. About to, exactly. <laughs> and, and in fact... It's kind of like the World Series of Law, isn't it? Right. It's a, it's a, you know, an experience that most lawyers will never have an opportunity to uh, participate in. And I, I told him, I said, you know, look, I, I'm not, you know... I said, I'd love to, to handle the case and argue the case, but I said, if you've got other people, I understand that too. And he said, well, he said, this particular law firm called me, and they are a very, very major, well-known national law firm with a significant amount of experience in arguing before the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And obviously, for them, it wasn't, oh, let's help this little guy. It was, we're really good at this. We'll be able to help you a lot, and this will just further enhance our reputation and we'll make it up in other cases right which is perfectly fine and 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 and, and i told this this fellow this fellow his name was phil manns nice nice guy i said x law firm and that lawyer will do a great job for you mm -hmm. I said, they, they may not care about you as much as 
I might or your other lawyer who represented you originally, but I said, make no mistake about it. They'll give you as good an argument as you can get if that's what you want to do. And he said, you know, he says, I don't think so. He says, I don't, I don't like that whole idea. And he says, plus, I've got a lawyer here in town who told me he's willing to take this on. He had represented me in stuff before, and, and he'd be willing to do it. And I said, well, if you have a, if you have a lawyer, I don't want to step on anybody's toes. And right. I said, I'd be you know, happy to step aside. And, and he said, well, he says, he's not really a bankruptcy lawyer, and he could probably use some help. <laughs> and my initial reaction was, well, you know, I don't know that I want to really help somebody. I mean, my excitement about it was the same as that other law firm. I'd sure, you want to get in there, yeah. Case, argue it in front of the Supreme Court, do all that sort of thing. And uh, and he, he talked to me more about it. He talked to me about the lawyer who was rep- going to represent him, he said. And, uh, and I said, well, let me think about it. And I looked up the lawyer's credentials and his experience, and, and he was a, a spectacular guy, the lawyer. He was a... a you know, he's in New Hampshire, so it wasn't a big, big law firm, but his firm was made up of, of lawyers who had been all with major law firms in different big cities around the country, and they all had some reason to be in, in New Hampshire. Yeah, they had kind of get out of the city there, or, or they family, were from there. Yeah. Any number of reasons sure. why. But they all had these very highly sophisticated practices before they got there. So I said, well, I'll talk to him. And I, I talked to him. The guy's name was Ned Whittington from New Hampshire. And uh, he was a great guy and a really committed guy to this, to this case and this client. And he said, look, he says, I've done a little bit of this bankruptcy stuff, but not much. He said, I would love to have the help if you're available to help me with the brief, you know, maybe work on a couple of arguments and, and mock arguments and so forth. He said, I also have this other lawyer who's a very well-known bankruptcy lawyer, uh, commercial bankruptcy lawyer, big case kind of guy from New York who's willing to help, and, he, and he, uh, he's a guy who also has had a number of appellate uh, courses uh, that he taught in law schools that would feature bankruptcy appeals. Hmm. So he was a, a perfect person to have, too. And I, and I agreed to help, and I was, I was glad I did. That was, that was back, in, uh, back in 94, I guess. It was, well, it was probably in early 95. So uh, the case was actually scheduled... To be argued, I did all that work, and we put together a brief, and you know, and then you have uh, 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 reviewing the other side's briefs, and in this particular case, <clears throat> well, and, and when you say when you say brief, that's kind of like your case, right? Yes, yeah. yeah, you you're you re- gathering your evidence and arguments and stuff, and creating this brief, and the brief is what you present to the court. Yes, you file it with the court, and the brief basically spells out. What has happened in the lower courts? Because you're limited. You can't introduce new things. The, the record is what the record is. It, it, is the, it is the evidence presented to the bankruptcy trial court. It is the uh, arguments raised in the lower courts as it went up. Uh, and then you, you summarize those. You may recharacterize your arguments somewhat. You can try to sneak in a new argument, but they're very skeptical of that. And sometimes they'll just say, we're not listening to that. Sure. Know? And if that's your situation and you've relied on something they're not going to listen to, you're in a tough spot. Well, and I guess that makes kind of sense, too, because they're, I mean, their function, as I understand it, is to basically just sort of cut through the chaff of the previous court decisions and decide which is the right decision based on the previously presented evidence. Correct. You're not. That's right. 
You're not going in there and saying, we found a glove, and now it doesn't fit. That's right. You know what I mean? Like, it's nothing like that. There's there's not a lot of TV going on in here. It is, in fact, a review of the prior court's decisions, and that's the focus. Now, typically, what's reviewed is also not factual. I mean, they don't look at factual stuff. That's pretty much set. In the absence of a finding of a lower court being probably clearly erroneous in its finding of fact, most of these things are... Well, did they conclude properly in in a legal sense? Did they, in this case, properly uh, apply a statute to this set of circumstances? Now, statutes are written in as good a manner as they can be, but they are always, by definition, going to be incomplete. I mean, sure. They can't anticipate every happening in the history of the world, and so so that's kind of what this was about. As as I've mentioned, and we've even talked about this before. In a bankruptcy case, the debtor's purpose is to get rid of all their old debts. All of those debts are not dischargeable, however, and we've talked about several kinds, taxes, student loans, and, and among others are debts that arise out of fraud. So if you defraud somebody and file a bankruptcy, they can come into the court and say, hey, I'm a victim of fraud here. You can't let people be a bad actor and then get away with it. Like right, that. right. And, and in fact, that's the case. And there are different standards if it's a if it's a writing versus an oral statement and so forth. But but that's the gist of it. If you've engaged in fraud, you're not going to be able to discharge that debt. Right. So the circumstance here was uh, this fellow up in up in New Hampshire, Phil Manns, bought a piece of property from somebody, and the seller uh, financed part of the purchase price. So. I can't remember the numbers anymore. They're they're quite old now. But just just to give an example, he he said I'll pay you 100 bucks for this property, and they said okay. Well, uh, they they probably had about a 30 dollar mortgage on it, and they 70 dollars equity. So he said well, I'll pay off the mortgage, and I'll pay you maybe 20, and I'll still owe you 50. You'll give me a essentially a mortgage as the seller. Gotcha. Okay. okay. And so that's what they did. Now. Everything was fine. Uh, the real estate market took a couple of dips and turns and downward turns. And at one point, Phil Manns decided he wanted to change the ownership status of this on this land from himself personally to a business that he was the sole owner of. So he would still have personal obligations on it, but the, the property would be in a different name. And I, I don't know the reasons for doing that. Yeah. There could have been legitimate tax reasons. He might have been doing who knows what, but that was what was going on. Well, now, the problem was that the mortgage that was being held by the seller had a what's called a due-on-sale clause, and a number of mortgages have this, and it says you, owe, you have to pay back the mortgage, um, and you have to pay it back 100 bucks a month for the next 25 years or whatever. Sure. But it may also say... However, if you sell the property, the entire balance is due on the sale. Okay, hence due on due sale. Due on sale, clause. yeah, exactly. Makes sense. And the idea there is that uh, uh, if you've got a low interest rate mortgage that you're the mortgage e on, you 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 are the creditor. You don't want to see that thing keep hunkering along at two percent when the current mortgage rates are seven. Right. And so if there's a sale, you want it to have to be refinanced, and then you can finance it at seven and. and yeah. It's, it's not unfair, but it's but it's something that so, happens. Yeah, yeah. And and there was a due on sale clause, and I guess uh, the allegation was that Phil Manns went to this guy and said, Hey, you know, I need to switch this property over. Is that any problem? 
And the guy said, well, it's the Duance Clause. And he said, yeah, I know that, but, you know, really, you know, it's just well, me. It's the same guy, yeah. They said, nope, sorry, you know, well, you know, if you want it, if you want, we'll let you do it, but you've got to pay us some huge number just to waive the Duance Sale Clause. You still owe the money. And he said, nah, forget it. Walked away. Well, nevertheless, he decided, well, you know, I, I don't, I guess, I don't care about that. I'm just going to do it. Off he went, and he transferred the property to this corporate entity, and on it, money went his merry way for several years. And he didn't do anything else thereafter, as I recall, to change the ownership or to encumber the property in any other way. That was just the way it was plugging along. And was he still making payments and everything? Or Yeah. Now, yeah. at some point, he stopped making payments when he was broke. Well, he right. fell into hard times. Sure, sure. It wasn't an immediate thing. Yeah, yeah. And there was no cause and effect there by any stretch. And lo and behold, over time, he ended up, his car business was going bad. He had financial problems. He ends up filing for bankruptcy. And in, a, in the course of that bankruptcy, the creditor says, aha, you transferred this property. There was a due on sale clause. If I'd have known you transferred this property, I would have foreclosed on you. I would have done all these other things. And, you know, you defrauded me by not telling me that. Mm-hmm. And so there were a lot of issues like, well, was the omission fraudulent, um, this, that, and the other. And, and I think what most of the lower courts had concluded was, you know what, you weren't worried about that that much. You didn't, you knew something was up and you didn't try to keep an eye on things or anything. You just went along and you got some new payments. You didn't say anything. Yeah, so and too it bad had been that you. way for years. For some period of time. I, I can't tell you exactly the period, but it wasn't, you know, a bang, bang. It wasn't right away. There was nothing that would have indicated this was part of a master plan by, <laughs> by this debtor. Right. So, uh, you filed the bankruptcy. There was this fight. And as I said, bankruptcy court, district court, court of appeals, the debtor's winning all the way through. And it's again, under the radar until the Supreme court out of the blue suddenly says, we're going to take this. Do they provide a reason why they take the they case? They say yes or no. And that's it. Correct. They say granted or denied. That's it. Huh. Occasionally, on the rarest of instances, you will get a dissenting opinion written by a justice or justices with regard to typically the denial of a writ. They'll say, wait a minute, this should have been granted for all these reasons, but it comes up in, in death penalty cases sometimes, that sort of thing. Right. Never going to happen in a sort of a truly small dollar figure bankruptcy case, individual debtor bankruptcy case. And this was a fairly small dollar case, I mean, because it's yeah. an individual. Yes. Yep. That's, that's just so weird that... But there are Like, do you, have you ever sat there and wondered why the hell they were like, yeah... Maybe they just here's, got bored of here's all these exciting best. cases and they were like, let's do something a little different. I, I <laughs> think that there is some, I believe actually, that bankruptcy cases have been somewhat disproportionate in the Supreme Court jurisprudence over the last, say, 20 years because they have given the court very good opportunities to address statutory construction issues in a in a somewhat non-political arena, okay. okay, so that they can be much more, I would say, jurisprudential about it and appear much less political about it. So when they make a decision... So they almost prefer bankruptcy cases. I, I, I don't know. That, I mean, they've certainly taken a lot of cases compared to the number of bankruptcy cases they took 40 years ago. Right. But... So that's just my surmise. I, I couldn't possibly tell you why. Okay. Now, I do think in this particular case, one reason why they may have taken it 
was that um, the most frequent creditor in bankruptcy cases is the United States government, taxes. Mm -hmm. They are often a creditor in tax in, in bankruptcy cases. Uh, but truthfully, that shouldn't have mattered to them here because this had nothing to do with taxes. Right. And if they have a tax claim, if it's not a really, really old one, they go through the bankruptcy anyway unaffected. But the U.S. government is a creditor in lots of other cases. They represent, that's the Small Business Administration, they have an SBA loan, uh, Department of Agriculture, all kinds of loans are made to uh, debtors and not repaid who then end up in bankruptcy. And the, the government you know, is not a debtor ever, it's always a creditor in these cases. Right. So it theoretically could have an interest in lowering standards for uh, non-dischargeability, if you will, because that inures to their benefit. In this case, the Supreme, the United States, through the Office of the Solicitor General, filed uh, a, a notice that they wanted to participate in this case, and they thought search should be granted. And I think that's a oftentimes a tipping point. Um, that's another reason why the Supreme Court clearly pays some uh, uh, credence to the statements of the Office of the Solicitor General because that office is the most expert in Supreme Court jurisprudence and argument of anybody right. anywhere. And so uh, they well, came in on the case as well. So the so the, the U.S. basically shoehorned their way into it because they saw that they might gain some benefit from how... They said this affects the interest of the United States. We are a creditor in thousands of cases annually. Sure. And so this can have an impact on the U.S. government and our treasury. That's interesting. And, and seems political in nature. Well, I, I, in, in a sense, every argument is political in nature. Um, and, and I would say this is this was probably a little bit less than some I've seen the U.S. in on. But certainly I think that is in part somewhat political. It's easier to be on that side to say, we're doing our best to try to recover all your tax dollars and other debts owing to the government so that we don't have to increase the taxes on you, the voting taxpayer. Right, so, right, right. So that, that, that could have been a part of it. Um, but in any, for whatever reason, the Supreme Court granted cert, and, and that's how I ended up becoming a part of the team, if you will, that worked on the case. All right, so, so you guys... <clears throat> I got, okay, so basically the timeline goes like this. Supreme Court has granted... Certiorari. That word. Cert. Cert. Has granted the cert. Then you contact the guy, or did you contact him before they... No, he, he had been... It, cert had been granted. Okay, so cert's been granted. You contact... Um, the debtor, uh, individual the debtor, debtor in New Hampshire. Yep. Then you talk to the lawyer that he already knew. Uh, no, no. I Oh, that yeah, that he that already he knew. knew. The, yes, yeah. the debtor already knew. Yes. So right. then you guys start talking. Then there was a third lawyer. An another bankruptcy lawyer from New York, a highly regarded bankruptcy lawyer, and we we agreed to work with this New Hampshire lawyer right. to work on the case, prepare the, the arguments, help write the brief, right. do research, uh, get so, it ready. And so you guys just basically doing this all over the phone then? All over the phone. Yeah. This is in, in olden days. It wasn't even... 
FaceTime or no. What was that thing with the what's the that's, camera one? That's Facebook. I know oh, Skype. Skype. Yeah, wasn't even Skype or any of that stuff. <laughs> right, right, right. This was just you know you're sending faxes phone. on that like faxes, that's on that weird big, like paper folding up like uh, rolling up paper. Oh god, that yeah. stuff was awful. It was delicious. It looked like wax paper that yeah, you or parchment paper that you'd put in the oven. But that's that's you know it was somewhat of what we did and 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 so over that period of time you uh, you know the the petitioner uh, was. The creditor, we were the respondent, so the petitioner files their brief first. We respond to their brief, then the petitioner can respond to reply to that, and we could have a, a sir reply if we needed. But I, I don't recall that we even got that far. We just filed our our brief. Uh, but as I said, the U.S. was interested, and they moved to intervene in the case so they could actually argue as well. Right, and but now, so did you guys have a time limit? Uh, oh yeah, like, of course. So 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 when the when the cert gets approved, what mm-hmm. what is? I mean, yeah, I, my recollection now that the amount of time that we had was probably, you know, sixty days, uh, and that time goes by very fast when when in, in things like this you start to go back to the beginning, right, and look at these because this statute had been passed and this was uh, the mid nineties. The statute that we were dealing with had been enacted as part of the Bankruptcy Reform Act of 1978, so it was less than 20 years old. But that statute was a successor to a prior version of the same sort of statute from earlier bankruptcy acts back to 1898, and even before that. Right. And so, when you're looking at legislative history, you say, "What did Congress mean when they did this?" Right. And before, you're looking at all before those you prior know it, versions. a week is gone, two weeks is gone, or so. And then, and I'm assuming there's then time limits when. So plaintiff submits a brief, then there's a time limit to respond. Yep, and petitioner, and then you have time. Now, of course, you're, you you kind of know what they're going to say, so right. you're preparing yours, but you then re- respond directly to theirs, and then they have this other short period to So the process reply. moves fairly quickly. Once, once, once the cert is granted and the Supreme Court says, we're going to hear your case, it's a pretty, I mean, relatively speaking, as far as the amount of time it took to get to this point. Yes, it's a fairly quick process. Yes, it, it, it indeed it is. Okay. Indeed it is. Now, the other thing that was really, really just by pure happenstance, I think, cool about this whole thing was that it was scheduled for argument on October 2nd, 1995. Okay. That's the first day of the October Oh, yeah, that's when they start. They yeah. always start on the first Monday. Right. And so on the first Monday, there's a little bit more pomp and circumstance because the justices come out from behind these ro- these uh, curtains. Yeah, there's like the big time. there's big, big curtains, curtains behind they, the bench. Yeah, they, they come back through there, and it's a whole thing. I didn't, you know, I well, I missed that. We'll see why here as we go on. <laughs> amazingly enough, but I was really excited about thinking. Never been inside the Supreme Court building. Here's my chance to be there on the very opening day. Yeah. So. Uh, you know, and, and in that period of time after your submitted briefs and everything else, you're you're literally practicing the oral argument. And, sure. And how would you do this? And and you're you're trying to focus your arguments on, oftentimes a particular justice or justices, because well, gee, in these cases, kinds of cases, they've sort of leaned this way, and that's a good thing for us, so we can try to focus their attention on that kind of reasoning to support our position. That that kind of thing. Uh, there wasn't a lot to tell us where specific justices might go. 
uh, on this. So we didn't. And we didn't is that have, that's something you're taking into consideration when you're practicing your oral arguments and putting the brief together? Is like okay, this justice tends to decide, you know, or go this way and that. Right. And so you're sort of trying. That's going to be difficult difficult to do because there's nine of them. Yeah, but don't forget, Justice Thomas never speaks, so you didn't have to worry about well, yeah. <laughs> responding to his question. Uh, and, and, and the fact of the matter is that, you know... And you, sometimes you not all of them are there, oh, right? Well, and but, in but, fact... But this is going to be the first day, so you're kind of banking on all of them being there, right? And yet they weren't. Oh, sh- well, of course. Imagine that. Shocking. Yeah. Justice Rehnquist, Chief Justice Rehnquist, I should say, was not there. Really? Yeah. He Now, people may or may not remember, probably don't remember, but Chief Justice Rehnquist had a lot of back problems, and he had sure. all kinds of issues with it. And there were a number of times where he wasn't able to participate. He just physically wasn't able to do it. And that, I guess, happened to be one of them. Wow. Because he did not participate, so we ended up with eight justices. And as people know now from recent history with the the gap after the uh, 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 appointment or non-appointment uh, after Justice Scalia's death, uh, a four to four means the lower court decision stands. Stands, yeah. And there's no, essentially it's a it's a tie goes to the runner kind of thing in the Supreme Court. No, no uh, prudent, uh, prudential result follows. You don't have to follow that decision of the Supreme Court. So we didn't know that Rehnquist would right. be there, but you know. So, so all right. So back back onto the timeline now. You guys are you're you're prepping your briefs, practicing your oral arguments. Um, you know, <clears throat> having. Many meetings on the phone and sending documents back and forth and all that. Um, talk. I, I, what I'm curious about now is now you know now you're a week before you got to go to Washington. So what is what's happening in that last week before yeah, you go? Everything at that point is fine tuning. Uh, again, maybe some mark uh, mock uh, oral arguments mm-hmm. uh, that might. And I, I think in fact Ned actually appeared before a group of, of lawyers. Up in New Hampshire, practicing, and they, you know, Ned was sort of like the head lawyer. He was the guy going to actually argue the case, right, in uh, in the Supreme Court, and so he would do that, and we would talk about it, and you know, well, this question came up. How do you think I should respond to this, or what if this arises, or is this a good parallel that we can use? All those kind of things, right up to the maybe a couple of days beforehand, and uh, and so this being a Monday. Um, you know, and, and Ned said, "Oh, I would. I hope you'll be able to come to Washington and sit at council table." And I said, "Well, oh, I would. I would love to do that." Now, yeah. this is all on my nickel, right? Uh, and I, you know, my kids just didn't eat for a week, but that was worth it. I do remember being hungry around, around late 1995. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and that's what <laughs> we did. We, we, uh, we went over to uh, to to Washington, but but it was as I said a Monday, and you know, I was already stretched. Uh, uh, economically, so I wasn't going to go there and be in some big city, expensive hotel overnight and all that right. stuff. I said, I don't need to, you know, be there at the crack, you know, or the, the night before. I'm going to get a cheap flight and go in the morning, and then go from the from uh, Reagan National right to the uh, Supreme Court, and I'll have plenty of time because the arguments don't start until nine, and and I had flights that were scheduled to get me to uh, D.C. at about seven ten. Right. So it was not. As far as that was going to be, is not a problem. Now the flight was the cheapest flight I could get was out of Columbus, not out of Dayton. Okay, yeah. So Columbus is about hour and ten minutes away right. from Dayton, the, yeah. from the airport, and at that time of, of day, not a lot, not of a lot of traffic. Yeah. So I 
I set my alarm at for four twenty, mm-hmm. and uh, off it went. And I was, you know, listening to hits from the eighties or something. But I, <laughs> I get out of bed, and you know, was it like Christmas morning for you? Did you uh, have trouble sleeping? Yeah, oh, sure. I didn't. Yeah, it wasn't a restful sleep. It was. Yeah, you know, yeah, it was yeah. Like, I think I'm. You know, I don't want to miss the alarm. Right. Um, and I was, I was right up. Took a shower, and you know, I had a brand new suit. I had. I was going to wear a brand new <laughs> suit. And, uh, the the radio said clear, fifty four degrees in Dayton. So I'm looking good. You know, that's that's a pretty good morning temperature in the first, second of October. Yeah. And uh, I switched on the TV and got the Weather Channel, which was on even back at back in yeah. those days. It was pretty and, much just uh, a weather. It was yeah, like was, graphics, though. It wasn't no, like what it is today. <laughs> we called it fancy graphics. But, yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, and it, what what I what I learned was uh, nothing about DC weather, but I did get a report on showers in France and Germany and Poland. So right, uh, that was helpful. But uh, the local weather report at least said cleared fifty four, and uh, Wright Patterson Air Force Base said uh, they had a problem, which was fog. Wow. That was the only local reporting problem. So about 4.51, I pulled out of the driveway, quick stop for some ATM cash, and I'm on 35 heading east to Columbus. Right. And 11 minutes later, I am in thick, thick, thick fog. Can't see anything. I'm having to slow down dramatically from probably 55 to 35. Holy shit. Just so I can go. Now, <laughs> now, I still had plenty of time to get to the airport. But right. That wasn't my concern. My concern was getting to be, this fog is so ugly, it may not let clear out by the, the time the plane's going to go. So, I, you know, I finally got to the airport. It was about 625, and I pulled into the long-term parking lot, first one that I see. And uh, I, you know, get to the shuttle bus and we drop off some people, pick up some people. I'm thinking, you know, let's go, let's go, let's yeah. go. Um, but, you know. At least it was, was pre-9-11, so security probably wasn't too bad. It was it was relatively easy. Yeah. Relatively <laughs> easy. And I got in, so I got in the uh, terminal at about, uh, oh, 637. Mm. And then I, at, just before I get into that, into the terminal, I hear this report over the radio. Uh, you know, there's a, you know, it's just a walkie-talkie guy saying, don't you don't have to rush in here because you know everything's delayed because of the fog. Oh shit! Now you know that's not, you know that's supposed to, you know, comfort people who, who are right. worried about missing their flight. But of course, that was no destination. Yeah, that was no comfort to oh. me. But uh, so so I you know now I'm in and I'm 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 waiting to hear what's going to happen and and I'm sitting in the airport. And it's now about seven fifteen, and I'm hearing nothing about fog lifting. So I'm rereading briefs. And the other thing that happens in a lot of these cases is, like I said, the Supreme, excuse me, the U.S. came in and actually intervened in the case and got standing to make an argument. Right. Also there, you may have heard of amicus briefs or amicus briefs, amicus curiae is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Friend of the court is what that means in English. Okay. And different groups will oftentimes say, dear Supreme Court, we have an interest in this issue. We would like to offer our views to you to help you in understanding and resolving this case. And you might get them from all over the place. On the one side, you might get them from the National Association of Finance Companies or the National uh, Consumer Protection uh, of America, Inc., or something Right on different sides. Uh, um, and we, we had no shortage of those. The National Consumer Law Center filed one on 
on one side, and and there were there were others that were offered to help the court come to a decision in this thing, and so I started going through those again. I mean, what else was I was I gonna do? And I went back and looked at this brief filed by the Solicitor General's office and did all those kinds of things. And uh, of course, these were things I had read several times before, and they they quickly become all too familiar. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, okay, it's now 7:25. I got to call the Supreme Court and ask them. Look, I'm delayed. Is what what can I do? I mean, it's doesn't make any difference. I mean, the case is being argued by another person, but right. you know, I'm already scheduled. I had a little piece of paper from the Supreme Court that was my entry to show this to the uh, um, to the bailiffs, and they take you to certain places and all this right, kind of right. Thing. And and I'm sitting in an airport in Columbus, Ohio. Ugh. So 7:31, I'm thinking I haven't called yet. I'll give it another nine minutes. Right. I, I'm thinking I bet people at the Supreme Court get to work early. They'll be there. I'll just wait until then. At 7:35, they finally open the door to the jetway, and then they disappear. And I'm thinking, ooh, you know. Could this be good? I mean, it's movement yeah. at least. And the, the fog, it looks as thick as it has been, but I'm thinking maybe they know something I don't know. But nothing's happening. So finally at 7.40, I decide, okay, i got to call the Supreme Court. And I call the Supreme Court and get the clerk's office, and this lady's very nice, says, thank you for letting me know. And I'm sure she's thinking, hey, pal, you're not even arguing the case. You're no more than a spectator. Don't call me here. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but she was very nice, and I just explained this is where I am, and I'm, I'm hoping I'll be there in plenty of time. Um, so I continue to kind of look through uh, uh, our brief and their brief and just to see if there's anything else I can come up with that uh, uh, might help. And I, uh, at that point, really, there was nothing. You've been through it all. So I, right. I feel the best, the best thing I can do now is pace. <laughs> so I decided I would pace the uh, the airport in Columbus, and I did that for a while. Took a little bit of a, a stroll, and uh, and I'm you know obviously checking the overhead monitors to see what's going to happen. And then it says, ah, oh, we're gonna we're gonna uh, leave at a, at eight a.m. Now that's at seven fifty-two. So you know I was mm. born in the morning, but it wasn't right. that morning. Yeah. I'm pretty sure <laughs> I'm being lied to by an overhead monitor. Right. Um, but you know I figure I'm, I'm gonna stay. Stay close. Um, and then maybe I'll be able to get there before the actual opening of this, you know, pomp and circumstance and all that sort of thing. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, okay, now that we know Rehnquist is not going to be there, will that have any impact on the case? I'm just kind of thinking about all these things. A few minutes later, there's finally uh, a plane at the gate next to us is, is boarding. But they say it'll still be a little while. So I'm thinking, well, this is course no good it's a little while what is a little while well a little while is a long while an <laughs> hour later Ugh. it's it's an hour later it's now 8:54, and i'm you know writing down my thoughts and stuff but it's it's tough to do while you're pacing so i'm in line trying to harass the u.s air employees and uh uh you know once in a lifetime chance i got it you know is there any other flight anything they say, you know, final boarding uh, for another flight, but it's not going to Washington. I don't know. I assume that's just their way of punishing me. Sure. That's what I figured. We'll get this. Guy. And you're thinking, I 
should have spent the 80 bucks to get a hotel room. You know, what an idiot. And it probably would have been, you know, even back then, 200 bucks, but uh, which was probably uh, about the cost of the flight. So yeah, it yeah. was not it was not really an option. Uh, and I thought I was going to be okay, stupid me. But uh, I, then I, I, I heard another overhead announcement, and it sounded like an America West flight going to D.C., but I only caught bits and pieces of it. And I'm thinking, well, what? What is this? What's happening? Uh, and I asked the U.S. Air guy, and he just looks at me and says, "Huh?" Uh, and they're just gonna load up and have to wait anyway, is what he tells me. Right. So uh, finally, just literally a couple minutes later, they say, "Yep, nope, it's time to board," and we stop boarding. And I'm still not sure I'm gonna make it, but I do have one thing going for me, and that is that we were the first case to be argued in the afternoon after lunch. Okay. So there were two cases to be argued in the morning. And one case in the afternoon. We were the only case for the afternoon. So, and they don't tell you exactly when you're going to argue because it's, well, you know, somebody could finish real early and we just keep going. Right. But realistically, it was pretty likely that we would be after lunch. So, you know, we get on the board, on board the plane, it's about 9.05. 9.35, we're still at the gate. Pilots say we'll be leaving in 20 or 30 minutes, about 15 minutes before. And I'm thinking, you know, if we leave at 9.45, we'll be in D.C. at 10.45. I might be able to get to the court by 11.30. Yeah. Before lunch. That's my hope. Uh, at least that way I've got a absent a traffic problem, a chance to get there. And, and, you know, from Reagan National to the Supreme Court building is not a very long taxi ride. No, but it's, it's a question of traffic, traffic. Right? Yeah, D.C. traffic. If you haven't been to D.C., uh, it's probably what hell looks like. Exactly. Especially if you're running late. And and that's and in fact, we did continue to run late, and it was still another five minutes or so before we were going to take off, and I just sat and, and read more stuff. So it, finally, we, we took off about 10 o'clock in bright sunshine. It was just spectacular. Yeah, absolutely clear. Perfect, perfect weather. And... Uh, we're, we're now in line, and at 10.07, the captain says, we're now number seven to go. Oh, for <laughs> <fuck's> sake. <laughs> and I mean, you know, it's a, he says 10 to 15 minutes more, but then it's only a 42-minute flight to D.C. Okay. So I'm still thinking 11.15 is a possibility. Yeah. We might still make it. 10.16, I hear this America West flight takes off, and that's a D.C. flight, I think. So I'm thinking, where well, a few minutes later, the guy says, we're next. Yeah. It's now 10.20. Jesus. There are no planes behind us. <laughs> That's the one thing I can tell. We came in last. It's like I'm, same thing for me at the bank or the grocery store or anyplace else. You're the last guy in line. Right. And so that's what, that's where I was. But uh, we take off at uh, 10.22 and a few minutes into the, we're in the air, and the pilot says, we're going to be at the gate in D.C. at 11.11. So I wonder, okay, I'll probably be able to get to the court on time. That's great. i gotta, got to try this. So I'm still reading some briefs. I read a brief by a fellow named Gary Klein, who I got to know later on as a consumer bankruptcy advocate and really well-done job. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, anxious to get all the way there. So finally, uh, we, uh, we land, but it's not in D.C. We, we land in a little 
Weir's Cave, Virginia, because DC was backed up. Jesus Christ. And so now we're sitting there and it's about 10:45, a little bit after 10:45, we got to get off the plane. Then we get back on the plane at 11:08 and then we're taxiing out another 5 minutes later. 11:20 we take off and by 11:45 we're there. Because it's just a hop, skip, and a jump. Right. There were people getting off that plane saying, anybody got a car? You yeah, know, it was just drive. drive. Yeah. I had no option, but got there. Got there finally. And, it, you know, I, I get out of the, uh, get off the plane in, in uh, Reagan National, and I'm, all I've got is a small briefcase, and I'm running through the, through the airport, and I run <laughs> outside, you know, of course you get outside, and there's always a, a line of people waiting for a taxi. Yeah. And I'm in the line, and I'm, you know, <laughs> and I finally come up to the front, and the guy pulls up and I hop in the back and I say to the Supreme Court you know <laughs> and I thought to myself what a goob you yeah. know this guy's gonna say yeah yeah sure pal I yeah. bet the whole place is waiting on you what justice what what yeah. did you say your name was exactly and, but I was just you know I thought oh man I, I got a shot at making it and, uh and you know it's a short ride and it takes like five minutes yeah and he pulls up and I get out I give him some money and I slam the door half on my finger and I'm like and I run up these steps and where am I in the back of a long line of tourists waiting to get oh, in. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so, you know, I'm there and I'm there. And I finally, I said, I can't. I can't wait in this line. I, wow. I just go up to the front and they've got the little metal detector and stuff there. And I said, look, I'm, I'm an attorney involved in one of the cases going to be argued this afternoon, first case. Oh, and I, you know, I got my little card. And he says, oh, okay, just come over here. And they take me to a series of offices. And, sure. you know, you check in here, you check in there. And they say, what have you got? In? And I had my... A handheld dictator dictation unit that I had. And, oh, you can't have that, and and some other stuff, probably on my a phone or something. And they said, okay, we'll hold all this stuff here, and uh, and you know we'll take you to where the, uh, you know the chambers and and the argument is the courtroom I should say, and uh, uh, and we'll bring you in, and then the bailiff will take you up to where you're supposed to be. And they said, you know, are you with a petitioner or respondent? And I said, respondent. And they said, okay. So. Up I go to the Supreme Court courtroom, and they open the doors in the back, and this bailiff is, is taking me in. And typically, as you face the court, the petitioner would be on the left, and the respondent would be on the right. And that's what I had always understood from reading up on Supreme Court practice and procedure. Mm -hmm. And I told the guy, yeah, I'm with the uh, respondent. And so we're, the guy sits me just outside the bench, where the lawyers would be, and I sit down waiting for the prior argument to finish, and ironically, it just happened to be a bankruptcy case, and I'm listening, and that just about was finished. But as I was walking in and being seated, I can see Justice Souter was then on the bench looking like, what kind of an idiot shows up late for a Supreme yeah. Court argument? <laughs> Who is this guy, and why wasn't he here on time? Right. You know, I'm kind of sheepishly sitting down, and the prior case finishes, and they announce, you know, that case is submitted and then the court says uh, we'll recess for lunch uh, argument to begin at whatever time it was and I don't remember exactly anymore it was one o'clock yeah. two o'clock whatever it was so now I've never met any of the people that I've discussed this case with over the phone oh shit yeah so you don't even know I don't know what like. they look like yeah. and this wasn't in the days when everybody's picture was on right, the internet right, and all that right. stuff I don't know who these people are so uh, I'm seated behind the wrong group because <laughs> The positions were swapped because anytime the U.S. 
is a party, it would sit on that right side. Uh, so while we should have been there, my guys were on the other side. So the the argument finishes, the, the justices leave the bench, and I say, oh, excuse me, hey, I'm Jeff Morris, nice to meet you finally, and, and the guy says, oh, no, 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 you're on the other side. <laughs> so now I go over and introduce myself to us. Oh, you know, glad you made it, and I had left a message at the clerk's office, and they knew that I was delayed by right. weather and everything else. Now, the one guy coming from New York, well, he was he had a lot of cases in, a, in an office in D.C. anyway, so yeah. he was there. And the other guy, as I said, had been there for the night before, so he was there. And then I finally show up. And, uh, and because we were the next case, you get special preferential treatment, and you get whisked down to the uh, Supreme Court... Uh, it's a public uh, cafeteria, mm-hmm. but you know we get sent down first, and the, the bailiffs take you down, and you get to go first. And, and um, it was very fast. It wasn't very good, but it was very fast. Right. Well, um, so so now you you've you've made DC. You've had your was it a complimentary lunch? Did you have to pay for? No, it? no, no. You pay for lunch. Oh shit! Well, yeah, you, pay you, for you, lunch. you paid for your your food. Paid my taxi fare, paid my flights, but, uh, and so, now I've, and I finally met the lawyers I've been working with for three months. Yeah, and you got a disapproving look from a Supreme Court justice. True, and and even better, he didn't know my name, so that so was, it was a great it was I a great a, a great start to your <laughs> Washington trip. I think though uh, we're this is going to end up being a two part episode because. Uh, uh, it's quite lengthy, and this so, is a perfect yeah, time to make that little little cliffhanger because right. you know what's what's going to happen. What's going to happen? How did my dad screw up the That's case right. even further for his client? It's yet to come. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, we want to thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for the show, you can always email us at motionsicknesstheshow at gmail dot com. Correct. That's I got the spot. it right. Yeah. Um, Please, uh, you know, give us a rating on iTunes. That always helps. Even if you don't want to write anything, you can just hit the little star. It takes about two seconds. And Fabulous. Make sure you hit the one all the way to the right, because that gives us five stars. I think, I think And we're getting tired of doing do. it ourselves. We're I getting... know. I can only make so many fake accounts. Carpal tunnel syndrome. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, so before we go, I do want to remind you that if you do go to Washington, D.C. yourself, just remember it's against the law post a public notice calling someone a coward for refusing to accept a challenge to a duel. Hmm. That's probably a pretty active uh, statute these days. I, well, I mean, I don't know if, you know, dueling is illegal, but calling someone out for not dueling certainly I, is. There's the problem. Yeah. All right, well, thanks so much for listening, everybody, and when we come back next week, uh, we'll we're, get to hear about the case. We're in the court. That's right. All right. All right, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next week.